Hello and welcome to another edition of Humanitarian AI Today, a podcast series produced by the Humanitarian AI Meetup Groups in Cambridge, San Francisco, Seattle, New York City, Toronto, Montreal, London, Paris, Berlin, Oslo, Geneva, Zurich, Bangalore, Tel Aviv, and Tokyo. I'm Mark Dalton. I'm the Special Projects Lead with the United Nations Office of Information and Communications Technology here in New York. Today, we're interviewing a very special guest, Monica Lamb, professor at Stanford, who heads Stanford's Open Virtual Assistant Lab, or OVAL. So welcome, Monica. Well, thank you. It's a pleasure having you on the podcast. So we wanted to talk about your work on virtual assistants. Now, many in the audience will be familiar with Siri and Alexa and Google Assistant, but you're working on a very different kind of virtual assistant. For those of us in the humanitarian space, given this is a humanitarian AI podcast, virtual assistants seem to be in our sort of near distant future because we're very focused on trying to structure data, analyze data that we have in crisis situations to improve decision making on response and planning. But AI is advancing so quickly that we felt it was really important to hear more about your work and understand how digital assistants work and what opportunities and risks they might bring to mm -hmm. generally, but also to the humanitarian space. So maybe with that said, to get started, would you like to introduce yourself and tell us more about the Oval Lab and what you're working on? Yeah, well, I am a professor in the computer science department at Stanford University, and we started this lab called Oval, as you mentioned. And the idea here is to create an open virtual assistant initiative. Um, the virtual assistants are just fast becoming like a very important interface for people to get to the internet. And we feel that it's really important to make it open source instead of having it be controlled by a couple of large companies. Because voice is a very basic technology and it needs to be open to everybody. And this is the right time. You don't want to wait because if they become so dominant that there is just no way to start a new effort, you know, it's, it's a little bit like what's happening with Facebook. If you try to react to Facebook now, it's impossible because they have gotten such a entrenched network. So it is really important to get started now um, to re prevent the situation where you just have a couple of companies that are way ahead and there is no way to basically compete uh, with what they have got. Can I ask you about that? So what's the, um, so we're at the start of virtual assistants. So what's the real risk here in general? And is, is the idea that they would have unprecedented access to so much information about an individual, is that the main risk? Well, let's talk a little bit about what it does. And then we will see what kind of information that they have, right? So what is provided in by the virtual assistant is the voice interface. And this is really the next generation computer interface. All right? Instead of having a terminal for the mainframe and a graphical and mouse interface for the PC. And now because of machine learning and natural language processing, we are getting to voice. So it is very fundamental. It changes how we talk to computers. And it affects everything that we do on the computers. So, for example, if you just take search, lots of people are searching um, on the computer. And usually, you know, we are now have we, we have to use keyword searches. 
But because of natural language, which is what is available on the virtual assistant, you can just say what you want and you just express it in, you know, full sentences, exactly what you care about. So that's for knowledge. And anything that you want to talk to, your IoT devices, your websites, your mobile apps, you don't have to open all the different pieces of software and give it your credentials because your assistant holds all this information. And you have a uniform interface and you just have a dialogue with, uh, say, Uber to order an Uber and whatnot. All right. So that's the interface with all the different companies, right? whether it is commercial or not. And this is kind of like the voice version of the browser, if you will. And on top of that, what is exciting is that you can now tell the, the system what to do. The simple things is turning on the light, turning off the light. And then you get to a point when you say, oh, if the stock goes down to this level, buy some shares and so forth. And we get to a point where the consumers can program their assistant and automate what they normally do as tasks. So natural language becomes just a general interface to everything that you do on the computer. But it is a one-stop interface. Okay, it's not like I go to Facebook for Facebook, Google for Google, Amazon for buying things. I can just do everything with a common interface, and this assistant knows everything about you, and they can provide better service than anybody else because they know like everything, you know, just everything about you. And so this is the reason why it has a very important role. So it has a lot of access to private information. The second piece of this picture here is that it is extremely expensive to build a virtual assistant. And once you build one, it's just really hard for other, you know, that's the reason why we have currently in America a duopoly of smart speakers between Amazon and Google. So given how much information the assistants have of the consumers, and if there are just one or two companies that have all this information, they just have way too much power. And the power goes in both directions. One is for the businesses. If every business is intermediated by Amazon or Google, then the Google and Amazon have a lot of control over the interactions, right? So if you look at the mobile devices, Apple and Google take a 30% cut on all the purchases you make on a mobile device, on the, on the Android uh, app store or on the Apple app store. But imagine Alexa turn around and say, I want to take a 30% cut of what you are selling. That is just an enormous power over the companies. And they can choose the services that they have uh, relationships with and what they promote and so forth. So that's the business side. And on the society side, you know, we all know that monopolies and duopolies are not good for consumers because it reduces innovation. Okay, they don't need to innovate. And uh, as we mentioned, they have a lot of private information. And then um, because all these concerns are driven by profits, then you have to wonder who is going to help with all the nonprofit courses, what nonprofit courses is like, what happened to the low resource languages and who is going to help and provide all the different services. So this is why we care so much about opening up the virtuals. Okay, so you've actually presented a really good case there. So in other words, the virtual assistants are going to be the future convergers of the internet and 
Internet of Things, have immense access to your own personal information. Um, they're expensive to make, so there's going to be really high barriers of entry, and yeah. that's going to reinforce a duality or a monopoly or whatever you want to say, which is going to create a very distorted marketplace, uh, not to mention the sort of privacy and side of business. So, what? So, I mean, that's great for setting that out like that. Maybe turning to that's obviously the why which drove you into what we're about to hear, the, the work you're doing. Can you tell us about the Oval Lab and what you were designing there, what you have designed there, and what are the components of it and what impact do you expect it to make? Sure. So we actually started working on this project about six years ago at the very, very early stage of assistance. And we found that the problem to be really difficult because Virtual assistance means understanding natural language, and that means machine learning, and machine learning means you need to have lots and lots of data. And Amazon has 10,000 employees just for Alexa, okay? And that is because there is so much manual labor in annotating real user utterances to figure out what they mean and how do you respond to that. So we started looking at this problem and we realized that um, this is just not doable in any, um, except by the largest companies, all right? So, but we also realized that the annotations have its downside because you can annotate the most popular sentences, but we make up all kinds of sentences. You are supposed to be able to understand new sentences and not just the popular ones, which is what machine learning usually does. And it has very poor coverage, and it is very brittle. If you want to do conversations, it's very brittle. And so what we spend about four years doing is to just create a new methodology for handling natural language understanding. And um, just at a high level, instead of just pushing purely from a deep learning perspective, we also combine that with programming languages concept. Okay, the natural language is very rich, and the closest thing that match natural language is actually programming languages. And since you are connecting to the computers, and computers, the best it can do is to execute programs. Okay, so you have the computers executing programs, humans doing natural language. So we focus on bringing these two things together, deep learning as well as programming languages, and we create a whole brand new set of tools that allow people to create these voice interfaces at a much lower cost of manual labor, especially. So that's the, you know, that's the research work that we have done at Stanford. So we build up these tools. So that's the first component. We call these tools Genie, by the way, it's the Genie toolkit. Can I just ask, is open source the right analogy here? Are these open source type tools? Everything is open source. Right. All okay. the tools that we have created, anybody can use to create their interfaces. So we make it very easy. So you can integrate these interfaces. So that's first component. The second component is that we take these tools and we create a lot of skills. You know, Alexa has 100,000, as we mentioned, these skills, which are the things. It's how you connect to the IOTs, the databases, and so forth. So we create a good number of these skills, and we put them in open source repository. And we call this Thingpedia. 
So it's like Wikipedia. We all know Wikipedia. It's the largest knowledge base because it is open source. So in the same way, we say that we want the entire web, voice web, to be open. So we call this Thinkpedia. It is an open crowdsourced repository. People can help provide the interfaces between voice and APIs and databases and so forth. And the most important thing is that it is non-proprietary. You know, you can have an open system that people can contribute to, but it doesn't mean that it is not proprietary. Okay. Alexa accepts contributions, 100,000 skills. All right. They are done by people outside of Alexa. But once you put it in there, okay, it is only available to the Alexa assistant. So we have to, we open it up. We say this is how we can accept contributions and we put the skills in one place. It's called Thinkpedia. Um, so for example, we also are uh, working with this open source community called Home Assistant. And they are like the 10th largest open source, um, most active open source um, project. And they have about 100,000 users and they are connected to like a thousand devices, a thousand IoT devices already. So we connect with them. And then actually we have been distributed as the voice interface to this um, open source home assistant. And we provide the voice interface. We are the voice assistant of that open source. Um, this is a gateway for connecting to all your home IoTs. So we now have a distribution with home assistant. And this is how we can get connected to. Um, we are now doing about 700 devices already. Okay, because of this um, integration. Well, and that's connected to Thinkpedia. Yeah. And do you have other people contributing to Thinkpedia? Well, we are just about to launch Genie. So this is a relatively new. We're getting ready to have it launched, and hopefully a lot of people will contribute. Right now, there are just a, just a few people who are familiar with this project who are working on, you know, who are contributing. But what we see here is that is, um, you know, by simplifying the tools to make it very easy for people to contribute, then we hope to see that grow. Right. So what is interesting is that if you think about Wikipedia, it has a data from many, many different countries and it has 300 plus languages in Wikipedia. And we see that in the future, you know, we can imagine that Thinkpedia will be able to talk to services and devices in 300 languages in the same way, right? And this is the power of, of open source. Alexa and Google and Siri, they are now doing 10 to 20 languages because it's just so expensive. But when you open source it, everybody says, I need to sell my own stuff and so forth. And that becomes a... um and it is possible for it to just grow larger than any proprietary system. Can you explain a little bit what the genie does then? What, what's that? that That's, there is the third component. Okay. Okay. So genie is a, is a toolkit to begin with to build skills. Thinkpedia holds the skills. The skills are open to all assistants. You know, if Alexa and Google want to use it, they are welcome to. But at the same time, we have also created an assistant, and it will be called Genie. But right now, its a, its release is a code name of Almond. 
So the genie assistant is open source. And this genie assistant can be run locally on your own, uh, on your own computer at home, or anybody can host the web services that provide the uh, virtual assistant. Okay. So it's, this is a little bit like email. You know, you can run your own email servers or you can use Pocket with Google or uh, Amazon or who, or maybe not Amazon, <laughs> Microsoft and Apple and wherever. What we want is that there are many providers. Okay. Um, it could be hosted for, you know, people who want that convenience or people who want to not have the data, you know, all the IoT data leave the house. They may actually host a computer uh, at home. Right. So this is the virtual assistant itself and it uses the skills from Thinkpedia. Right. Thanks. If I wanted to participate in this then, and I wanted to connect up a virtual assistant to my own home, which I haven't done, by the way, but if I did want to do that, then I would have an option, aside from Alexa and all the others, to select the Almond Assistant or what will become Genie. Yes. And that will draw down on the knowledge base that you're calling Thinkpedia, which is a yeah. that is open source. Uh, everything is open source. Yeah. The tool, Thinkpedia, as well as the assistant itself. So you're really bringing to market, if you like, a completely open source alternative to what Amazon and Google and Apple are offering. I mean, before this call, I had a quick look at the sales of Amazon's Echo, and I think it 3 million last year sales, 130 million in 2025 is the projection. So over doubling in just five years, and this looks set to continue. So what's your read of what's going to happen in the next five years? Do you think there's going to be a moment where people suddenly become very conscious about privacy, about these kinds of issues, and will want to, and maybe maybe your solution is, is in a situation where it's simpler and easier to use, there's a lower barrier of entry. Do you see that, that moment happening where people suddenly say, I'm going to go with the open source solution? <laughs> well, what we have done is to lay out this foundation of technology that is supportive of a lot of people's contribution. Okay, so that's where we are. We are not a competitor at all at this point to um, Alexa, as you mentioned, how big a market they have. But what I want to point out is that there are many more companies that are available that are around other than Google and Alexa. If you look at the open source operating system efforts, all right, so you have Windows. They are a certified monopoly, right, <laughs> on the PCs. And then the open source community created Linux, created, um, you know, the, it starts with Unix and then BSD and then Linux, but it's an open source operating system that has just persisted from the very early days. And then guess what happened when Apple and Google made their phones? They are using the open source operating system, which is the iOS and which is Chrome. And no, you now no longer can get a Windows phone. Right? Just flip it. It's like if we didn't have the open source Unix effort, then we'll all be still running around with Windows phones. And this is what I mean. It's like monopolies are really bad for innovation. So we have to start this effort just like we started Unix many, many years ago. And given this effort, 
it doesn't mean that companies cannot participate. Okay, there are various companies out there that may find this to be a right platform for them to make products for their large install base. That there are there are telcos, there are other phone companies, there are you know there are many many big companies also. The thing that I believe in is that voice is just too big to lose. You just cannot say I I, I give up, right? You cannot give up on voice. And I think this is a little bit like the early days of the internet, where you have AOL. All right, AOL says, "Just comes to me. I'll give you a what do they call it? A wall garden, <laughs> a, a wall garden, and I make sure that all the services are secure and all that, and just come to me." And people say, "I don't want that because there is the whole world doesn't want to sit inside AOL." And this is what I am expecting: is that there are enough companies and interest in having this technology, especially now that it is in a form that is much more efficient for them to say, "Well, we can help build on top of this." So now there is the privacy bit, but there is also a very strong commercial reason for people to. Create alternatives to the assistance because it is just too big to lose. No,、oh, great. That's really clear.、You、explain that super well. Um, can I turn to our humanitarian community? Yeah. Because、uh, you know, there's a lot of interest here on how virtual assistance could work in our space. And as、mm-hmm. I mentioned, it feels a little bit like distant future because our focus is we're so heavily focused right now on just trying to handle the data or get the data that we need, analyze it. And there are agencies that are working on machine learning and natural language processing to prove automation, to prove our ability of analyzing it. But I mean, at what point do you think?、Uh, well, I had really two questions. You know, what point do you think we should start really engaging on virtual assistants? Is this something that we should be thinking about already, given what I've just said? And and I had a second question, which maybe I'll just ask straight away, which is around structured data. We have a sense. That we have to get all the data structured and organized before we can make sense of it. However, we're also aware that computing power is becoming pretty significant, and as this becomes more powerful, does that belief still hold true?、Um, seems that some companies have got you know proprietary solutions that seem to be able to handle unstructured data incredibly well and get insights out of that. So it'd be interesting to get your perspective on that. Well, these are two very different problems. So let's take the first one first. Do you want to look into or work on virtual assistants right now? And the answer is yes. Virtual assistant sounds like a very fancy word, but it is really just a super conversational agent. And conversational agents or call centers existed all this time, but what is happening with virtual assistant is that because of the scale, you know, nobody is attempting it. Uh, except for the largest companies, and this is why we spend all this time improving the efficiency in order to handle the scale. But all the technology that we are doing can be applied immediately to any special causes that you have as a conversational agent. Let's just take COVID, right? And、um, anybody who you know, there are lots of people. This, what I read is that there are lots of people who. Are not even connected to the internet, right? They don't know how to make an appointment on the internet. 
And, um, you know, there are phone numbers that you can call, right? Imagine automating just all that. The people can just call and they can talk about how I want, you know, it's like they have so many questions about questions about COVID, right? And now you can ask it in your native language and then you can answer the specific question that you have all automatically instead of, you know, recruiting tons, you know, lots and lots of volunteers. So this basic voice assistant is useful for many, many humanitarian needs. Okay, so health is just an example. Uh, give you another example. So there are a lot of illiterate people, for example, in Africa, and you can hand them a mobile phone and they will not be able to make a phone call using the phone book because they cannot read. But with a voice assistant or voice technology, they can just say, you know, call so and so. So in other words, voice is so basic. Don't think of it as an advanced distant thing. With machine learning, we are now getting a technology that can reach everybody on earth because they all speak some language because now you are talking about human language and you can absolutely use this to advance any of these humanitarian causes that we have, right? But virtual assistant is kind of the super version of that. But as I mentioned, we need to scale for the virtual assistant, but we reduce the cost. But when you reduce the cost, you can also use it for a lot of these nonprofit causes because there is no money to pay for that kind of development. So now we can see the highest technology being used to uh, serve the poorest of the communities. So I think that this is very important. No, that, that thanks. That's, I mean, there's a great use cases you suggested COVID and accessing and you know apart from the humanitarian system in itself actually having communities able to access information through a virtual assistant in their native language it's powerful and this is so important these days because of all the fake news all the you know you look at how social media like to promote these sensational stories you know and nobody knows what is true and what is not anymore and this is the one of the things that we really want to do is to add functions to the virtual assistant that is not uh, that is really designed for social good right so we worked on a scale one of our skills is a covid skill and it answers um questions about covid and the whole idea is that we can have researchers that prepare answers based on the scientific merit of different studies so that you know when you talk to this particular assistant, you are getting the truth rather than, you know, this person says that, that person says that, right? And this is absolutely needed. So if you think about the good old media of TV, right, you have paid TV and you have public TV. Why do we need that? Because the paid TV is, you know, it has to be sponsored by ads. Just like a lot of the social media, they are sponsored by ads. And so they are promoting stories that people pay to promote, right? The, once you have an open source assistant, you can now talk about a, like the PBS version of an assistant that talks to you. And now we can put in information about health, about um, elections. Or there are many, many topics, but this will be a place where you can have a conversation 
have your specific questions answered, and you can trust it. And this is just something that is really needed in this world. And it is something we have failed to do as we moved our technology so quickly through the media of newspapers and TV, or newspapers, radios, TVs, where there is a lot of People take a lot of care in preparing, you know, for the in, in journalism to now social media where we just see a lot of stories being promoted. And now what we are talking about is an open source version where we have a chance now to make sure that we have social good content to be distributed on this, you know, the most advanced uh, technology. Yeah, no, that's a great, great point. Because like any technology, you have to have trust and you're only going to have trust in a virtual assistant, a voice assistant, if you know that the answers it's given you are from an, from an authentic, you know, authorized, validated, trusted source. It's a little bit like um, premise for good journalism, triangulation, getting the most accurate picture. It's pretty easy to do when you're asking about the weather or what's the temperature today, but it's when you start asking it more complex questions that it becomes important. Can I come back um, to that structured versus unstructured question? Is it right for us to think that we need to kind of organize all this data and get it structured before we can really make sense of it? Or is computing power going to leapfrog us into a situation where we can just throw computing power at very unstructured information and data and pull out insights? Well, first of all, As a technologist, I have to tell you that we are still not so good at answering questions based on structured data in natural language. Okay, so if you give me a structured data, I can query it using SQL, you know, a database language. But if I have to query it using natural language, it is not so good even. And actually, this is one of the areas of work that we put in so that we can now answer all kinds of questions on the structured data, even though they are not popular questions. Uh, When we do a comparison with the commercial assistant, we can actually answer um, many more questions on structured data that they can, because we have a totally different approach of how we teach our neural network how to answer questions. Okay, so let's start with that, all right? Now, then there is the unstructured text, And we have made a lot of progress. And the interesting question here is whether you can interpret what the neural network is doing. All right. It can give you an answer, but can you trust it? All right. So structured data is obvious. We turn it into a query, and then we are pulling you information from the database. If I have a say an end-to-end neural network. I'm taking you the extreme. There are any there are things in between, okay? But let's take the extreme form where it is pure neural, right? You say, you know that there is a lot of um, the pre-trained models out there. You've heard of GPT-3? It's the latest rage these days. Right. It has 175 billion parameters and it can write you uh, novels. They can write you news articles, but they're not new. But, I mean, they're not real, but they can do that. All right. And they can just view a really incredible text. And what is amazing is that you can have a preamble. You can say, if A is to B, then what is C to 
you know, what is D to C? Okay, you can ask it all kinds of questions, and it is and it answers questions. All right, but there is a huge issue with uh, those kinds of technology because it's statistical. Right. I mean, this is reading a lot of data, and it creates a neural network which is based on statistics. But can you trust the answers? So, for example, today, if you ask、um, GPT three, we just did that experiment. Is that、uh, who is the director of the AI lab at Stanford? Okay, and it would say Fei Fei Li. Okay, so Fei Fei Li was the director, and now Chris Manning is the director for the last three years. But what does it know? It just read so many things, and it has seen various people called the lab director, and it gives you one answer. So yes, there are advances. There are—I mean, these are the two extremes. But one is to read structured data, and the other one is to read the entire internet, and it gives you answers, but you may not want to trust.、Them. Right, it comes back to trust again. Okay. <laughs> so, so no, no, no. Let's just say、yeah. that you can trust that it is statistical. Yes. But when it comes to fake news and all that, we don't have the trust on the sources. Right. Right. So no holy grail in imminent sight then, in terms of computing power. But <laughs> but a lot of work still to do. I, I mean, Monica, this is interesting. It, it feels like、um, well, you've convinced me that in the humanitarian space, we probably do need to engage. I know there are some pilot projects going on with different agencies. But maybe we need to be engaging a lot more. Should humanitarian organizations be reaching out to the Oval Lab and looking to try and collaborate with you? Absolutely. So actually, our project,、um, the, our project was originally funded by NSF. We are a computer science research team, and last year we received a grant from the Sloan Foundation, and this is exactly for humanitarian reasons. And Doran Weber is the program manager, and he absolutely understands what we are talking about today. He sees that this is the time. It's like if you 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 have to do it now or never. All right, you know the assistant is pretty popular now, but it still has a long way to go to reach its full potential. So that's why we did get a grant from the Sloan, and it is really well appreciated because we have.、Um, You know, of course, in, as a as an academic department, we have we have able to get funding for research, but we don't have the money to prioritize. So we do all this research, we write all these papers, right? We write papers on how to make the assistant faster or more efficient or more effective or or cost effective and so forth. And people like Amazon and Google, they love it. They take the ideas and they put it into their products. We also did projects on open source or how do you protect privacy and so forth, but nobody picks them up, <laughs> right? This does not go well with their commercial objectives. I'm generalizing a little bit. Of course, there are various pieces of technology that are picked up that have to do with privacy. I must say, but in general, we will just stop at the research and we never reach the consumers. Right. We don't that, even productize the software so that you can now build on top of our open source tools. However, the ideas are published, and they can put the information or the ideas into their proprietary tools. 
and their proprietary systems. And there is a gap in this funding, actually. Right. So Sloan is really funding the researching, but you're saying there's a gap in terms of scaling the No, solution. no, no. Sloan is actually funding the prioritization. Ah, okay. I'm with you. Okay. So, and, and so this is the role that the um, philanthropic organizations can do. Because what they are saying here is that, you know, Amazon and Google and all these people, they have, they invest billions of dollars into their technology and the product. Who is investing in the technology for the consumers? For the sake of privacy for the consumers. So it could be the government or it could be uh, the foundations, you know, the, the humanitarian groups, because they see this as a technology that can that needs to be done in the open. Otherwise, you know, you're not going to have high tech for all these purposes that could use high tech. This is why there is such a divide right now. The high techs are kind of locked up by these largest companies because they have the resources to develop it and profit from it. But what about all these nonprofit causes? Who is putting the, the um, investment in it? So we publicize our research, but this is the first time actually our group has gotten um, non-research dollars to hire some engineers to help productize the system. But mind you, the assistant project is so big and we really just have a tiny amount of money to start demonstrating that this is useful. We still need a lot more resources. You put in the foundation, then you can possibly attract contributors. You're asking me who is contributing. And I said, well, I'm filling the gap right now. It is not, you know, we just have a very small number of very talented PhD students. Okay. But this is the first time we are able to hire a little bit of engineering staff and to try to make it attractive, let's say, to the developers and to the contributors. Right. Okay. That's very interesting. But there's there's definitely scope for more developers and engineers to come in to, to help productize it, if you like. Yeah. Okay. okay. No, Monica, that's it's been really fascinating. Um, and I feel that if we put your email out, um, you'll probably get lots of emails from the humanitarian community asking for, you know, areas where we might be able to partner and and maybe for more information. Before we close, is there anything that you'd like to share as a final takeaway? I think that this seems so difficult. Um, if you look at, you, you're recording the numbers of how many users Amazon has and stuff like that. And all I can just say here is that voice is so important. It is how people communicate and this is how you're gonna communicate with the computers. And we have to keep this open source. And I hope that with this foundation, it is possible for it to become a bigger voice web than any proprietary system that can be built. Brilliant. Thanks very much. No, it's really come across. I think you've explained it very well, and it's certainly a critical area. You know, um, voice is voice. You know, it's like you cannot beat it. <laughs> you cannot ignore it. I think actually the interesting thing is the timing. We are at the verge of a transition in the development paradigm. And um, whenever you have a leap in efficiency, things are just going to move a lot faster. And at 
the in our department. You know, we just it was uh, it was a very interesting piece of research where you combine deep learning and programming languages. But this information is going to be you know studied by everybody, and it will be incorporated into everybody's into everybody's uh, assistance. So we are at this turning point, and this is the time to put in the investment to advance that in the open source domain. Right? And so this is a very critical that we that we do something about it now, you know, before everything is set in stone in, you know, how things are built and stuff like that, and they will always be faster. So we have a window of opportunities, what you're saying. Yes. Yeah. I, yes. I mean, apart from grants by Sloan, the Sloan Foundation, I mean, what else do you think you'd like to see happen in this space? Is it a question of more foundations putting money in, um, bigger foundations, or do we need companies to come in and help? Oh, very, very good point. When we first put this initiative together, we were hoping that we can bring a consortium of companies to create this open project. Okay. Um, let, let me give you an analogy. About 10 years ago at Stanford, we have created this industry consortium called Software-Defined Networks. I don't know if you've heard of it. It is very, it is a big deal because what it is doing is to disrupt the Cisco monopoly. Okay. Cisco has a networking monopoly and it is hard to innovate and add anything to it. The software defined networks add a layer of software on top of it so that you can create new features, but it is done with a consortium of largest companies together. And by the time this technology is defined, many companies are rolling out products using this new infrastructure. All right. And that was all based on a company consortium. And this is what we were thinking that we were able to do because we know that every company, the telcos, the, the retail stores, and all these people want voice. All right. And we want to bring them together and create this consortium. But what we realized is that the cost of developing assistance was so hard that we really have to change the methodology first. So in the last four years, we focus on the technology. And um, we are, and as, you, as I told you, we just have it at the research level. So what we need to do is to demonstrate the use of this technology to make it more mature so that the companies can come in. So there is a gap, is what I see, between this. Uh, so there are four stages. There is the research. Then right now we are doing the pilots, the demonstrations. and. So far, we were able to get Sloan to put some investment in this because nobody else would touch us. This problem is too hard. And what we are hoping is that we bring in more people who see the need to keep this technology open. Then we make it mature enough, then you can bring the companies in. And then when the companies can come in, then you know they are making money off this technology, then it will be self-sustaining. Right, I see. So there's a point at which you're hoping that investments will get to a point where companies see this as a platform that's not going to go away, a viable platform on which Exactly. And right. we think it will take about three years. Right. So if I and what we 
you know, a lot of people were asking me, why don't you start a company on this? The problem here is that if I start a company, um, nobody should expect me to stay independent. It will be bought up before long. And there are various open source companies that have been started in this space and they have been bought up and turned proprietary. And so this is the reason why we say, let's incubate that in the university. You know, we're not trying to make money. <laughs> we incubate it. Once it get established to a point where it is not going to go away, then you can imagine a lot of startup opportunities and a lot of companies building on top of it. You know, there are a lot of uh, very, very big open source companies <laughs> like GitHub and uh, and uh, who's the other one? Um, but all these were established and then you get the companies built on top of the established open source initiatives. Right. No, that makes a lot of sense. There are precedents, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. But it is hard to do. <laughs> yeah. No, that's a uh, <laughs> commendable effort. Yeah. Um, but if you want to talk about interoperability, I have more to say about that. So about what in, is, interoperability about, of, of what? Systems or? or? Oh, okay. So let's start by saying, why is Facebook so big? <laughs> Facebook is so big because it helps people share, right? But it is a centralized system. You put all the pictures, everything into Facebook. They own it and they share it with you. And now that with our system, I told you it's a federated architecture. I run my virtual system. You run your virtual system. And how do we share? It turns out that your virtual system is absolutely your best friend for sharing with privacy. Because I can tell my assistant to share uh, these pictures, you know, the pictures of Halloween party to everybody who, attend, who had attended the party. And the virtual assistant can contact your virtual assistant and say, well, put this into the photo gallery or whatever. Anything that you want to share, the virtual, you know, you know that the virtual assistants have, have access to all your IOTs, your banking account and everything. And they can share anything on your behalf. Okay. So, but how do the virtual assistants share? They need to communicate with each other. Okay. And this is where the standardization that I care about come in. I want the Google assistant to talk to the Alexa assistant. They haven't got to it yet because they're all siloed, right? I mean, it is your assistant. You're just talking to Alexa. You're not talking to your friends yet, but that is coming. But what we have created is a secure protocol for the assistants to share different resources with access control in natural language. This is a this is a very interesting paper that we have written on this topic. And if you allow sharing without centralization, this is how we can undo all these years of damage where everybody just assumes that sharing means centralization and giving ownership of your data. That's really interesting. That's, uh, there's, there's layers and layers and layers of this. We could probably layers keep going layers. for quite a while. <laughs> <laughs> Do you want one more layer? I, I just want to bring one more. Topic. Okay, well, go ahead. Go ahead. So you know that um, at the beginning of the web server days, people invented Java. Right? Java is a web server language. And do you know how important that is? 
Because once you define this language, everybody standardized on it. All the tools, all the libraries are built on Java. So what we have created is a language for virtual assistants. It's called ThingTalk. Right? And we are putting all the tools, all the data sets, everything is labeled with ThingTalk. We want to standardize it. If we standardize this, then all of a sudden, everybody will be collaborating with each other at the code level, um, whether you are working on the same assistant or not. And this is how we plan to create this effort. It is through the common technology solving a lot of the difficulties that the developers encounter. And so what I believe in is that there is another way for the technology to win over, and that is the need to share. And when you have enough developers working on the same language rather than a proprietary language, then it will completely change the virtual assistant industry. Do you believe that? I think so. <laughs> <laughs> this is the newest thing that we have discovered, really. Right. It's like we started with the companies and then the philanthropy organizations. That was a new one. We didn't know that the philanthropist organizations is a good source of uh, support. And then now, as we think about it, we feel like there is also this technology way of bringing people together. Right. Thanks, because you've really opened up an incredibly fascinating space. Uh, I, I mean, there's so many dimensions to it. And now, now that I'm sure listening to this, we begin to realize just how important it is, you know, to, Good. To, I'm glad to, to, hear that. to actually um, have an open source virtual assistant network. Yeah, we need yeah. your help. We need your help yeah. to get this word out. I think that it is, you, you know, as you said, it seems distant. But the technology moves so fast. And if you don't start now, playing catch up is many times worse. Yeah. It's impossible. Let's put it this way. It's impossible for you to replace Facebook, except with better technology. And right. actually, virtual assistants could potentially do that. Right. Good stuff. Well, so we wish you the best of luck in the lab. Thanks again. It's been a super interesting discussion. This is Mark Dalton, your guest host, and this brings us to an end of another edition of Humanitarian AI Today. Thanks for joining us. I'm Jen Bees, Humanitarian AI Today's audio engineer and musician. Thanks for tuning in to another interview. Please remember to follow the podcast series, and for more content, check out Humanitarian AI Today's interview notes on medium.com.